Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, your show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music as well as what's streaming, what's playing in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I am not only a musician, I'm also a lifelong Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, pop culturist, and pirate, Al John Go. And you can email me, aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. Arr, and I'm Dave Bossert, artist, filmmaker, and author. And welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Uh, Al John, how are you this week? We've got a great show. Oh, man, I am totally psyched. I'm ready to rock. And uh, I feel like I can finally, you know, I'm settling into 2023 and it feels pretty good. It does. And, you know, we, we've we got Didier Gares, uh, and he's the author of Origins of the True Life Adventures. Nice. Origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. We're going to be talking about that today, and I can't wait. This is going to be a great discussion. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's a terrific book, I have to tell you. I'll, I'll just give you a little tease on that. I love uh, the True Life Adventures. I remember growing up as a kid, once again, my dad going to the public library and getting those those films, putting them in the reel, and then just hitting play and watching them in our kitchen um, yeah. growing up. And that's awesome that we get to talk and, and shed some more light on this great series. Yeah. And, you know, I, I will tell you, you know, that that Disney was a trailblazer when it came to nature documentaries, uh, obviously with the true life adventures, but even after the true life adventures, there was tons of uh, nature documentaries that were done for the uh, wonderful world, the Disney television show. uh, And also you've got Disney nature today uh, as a label that's producing uh, more nature documentaries, new nature documentaries. So it's really, I think this is an area that we could talk about uh, quite a bit. I love it. And and it's something that his legacy lives on because a lot of them kind of 
borrowed from that formula. You know, I dare I say steal because it's that kind of story thread that a lot of these documentaries have have really gotten in those, um, you know, from that as a derivative of that. Yeah, no, but it laid the foundation for Jacques Cousteau and the, you know, Mutual of Omaha and all of those uh, uh, nature uh, documentaries and television shows that followed. You saying that just makes me so nostalgic because I love those growing up and I still love nature documentaries today and I love watching them with with my kids. It's just so eye-opening. There's so much more we can learn about nature, so I'm looking forward to breaking it down with DTA. So Awesome. But having said that, Dave, uh, we now are looking at what we've been streaming this week. And, uh, you know, as we were saying, 2023, we're settling. And, Dave, uh, were you able to consume any media this week? I- you, you, you know, <laughs> I got to tell you, since getting back from the East Coast, I, uh, I've i been so busy. I did manage to watch a few things. Um, Raymond and Ray is a movie uh with uh Ethan Hawke and um Ewan McGregor yes uh and it's about two brothers same father different mothers uh and uh you know they have to come together because their father passes away and it's uh it w- it was entertaining it was interesting um it's definitely a movie you can watch on a streaming service you don't have to see it in the theaters sure um, I also caught uh, caught up on another episode of 1923 with Harrison Ford and Helen Murren, right on. Uh, which is really, I mean, a terrific show. If oh, you haven't man. seen this, uh, highly recommend it. It's on Paramount Plus. Nice. Uh, I also watched the Mindy Project on Netflix. Oh yeah. Yeah, and uh, I hadn't seen this uh, at all. Nancy started watching it, and I started watching it with her. Very funny, very smartly written. Mindy's really, funny. T- really terrific comedians in this uh, in this show. If you haven't seen the Mindy Project, uh, je- definitely check it out on Netflix. Mm. And then I finished watching Berlin Station on Prime, uh, and that's you know about the uh, the CIA office in Berlin, uh, and it's a whole you know uh, spy versus spy uh covert operations kind of a show and really really enjoyed it i really liked it a lot there's only two seasons of it but it's on prime you can watch it there um we watched a six episode limited series called treason with the actor who plays daredevil oh charlie cox yeah and uh he's the lead in this and it was terrific oh i bet nice yeah, so you could check that out on Netflix. And then also on Prime, uh, I did watch uh, the first season of Deep State okay. uh, with Max Strong as the lead. Right on. Yeah, and a really well done show. You know, I'm I'm really getting into these shows that are uh, uh, filmed in Europe and uh, other places, you know. I mean, they're... Uh, you know, Deep State takes place in England, France, and the Middle East. Yeah. And, right. and and it's really terrific. Oh, very cool. Well, I like that. I know that I still have a few of these shows on my on my uh, my queue. So I'm definitely yeah. gonna have to get get around to it now that we have Martin Luther today is Martin Luther King Day. Um so I have a little bit of time to kind of catch up on some things and uh there you go. This is perfect. And, and, and by the way, you know, I always watch 
Martin Luther King's uh, speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, yes. his his famous "I Have a Dream" speech. I watch that every Martin Luther King Day. Same, you know, you can find it on YouTube. You can find it on a number of websites. Uh, but I always watch him uh, do do that speech because it's such an inspiring speech. So. Uh, happy Martin Luther King Day. And if you have a moment, uh, either read uh, the speech or listen to it. I agree 100%. I think it's great to kind of keep those ideals at the front of your mind. You know, And I, I think that's something to strive for, for sure. So, um, But great, great list, Dave. I like the list. What now, have you been watching? Well, I saw a couple things. Um, you know, Kristen and I love, we, we make time for our show of shows we're we're very much in entrenched in the uh, latest seasons of criminal minds evolution on paramount plus as well as mm-hmm. uh, uh, what else we're we're watching um law and order svu like we were we watch all of our crime procedurals and fbi shows fbi most wanted but i wanted to let you know that we did watch an independent film called amber alert and this is it's been out there for a while. It's on Prime, Amazon Prime, but it's a independent bottle, ship in a bottle kind of movie where an Amber Alert gets sent out, and this group of three friends ends up hearing about it and seeing that they are trailing the car that has the Amber Alert. Wow! And so it's a it's a hour it's an hour and twenty minutes uh, long. It's probably twenty minutes, maybe too too much, but you know, what would you do? Would you trail the car? They decide to trail the car and then craziness ensues um, because of. The well, I, I honestly, I think if you if you were to see the car on an Amber Alert, what's the first th- first thing you're going to do? I'm going to call, call 911. You're <laughs> yeah, going to say, absolutely. hey, I, there's an Amber Alert and I, I'm behind that car and I'm here. Here's where I'm located. Right. So they do that several times, but 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 here's what takes me out of it it's the the police's re- response to that amber alert that really kind of puts it off but you know i may we're able to sit there at dave and, and it's and it's good for their first attempt at a you know kind of an independent film i think there's more more for this group it was directed by Carrie balsea so and written by Carrie balsea so i'm i'm hoping that there's more um, for them down the road Cool. And we also happened to watch a show on Peacock streaming, which is the show Sick, the movie Sick. And the movie Sick is written by Kevin Williamson from Scream. So we said, oh, this is interesting. And I think it's a Blumhouse film. But uh, due to the pandemic, Parker and her best friend decided to quarantine at the family lake house, or so they think. <laughs> right? So it's one of those kind of Scream-esque Dun, dun, exactly, dun. exactly right. You know, <laughs> you know, you know, you can't go an episode of the Skull Rock podcast without hearing what horror movie uh, my wife and I watched uh, for the week. But that does happen. But once again, there's a little twisty turn to it. And while it's very predictable, I think if you're in for you know some some cheap thrills, this movie's for you. So once again, another another Blumhouse film. It's not at the top of the Blumhouse list. It's somewhere right underneath the center, you know, for me, but it wasn't a waste of time. So there you go. 
Hey, uh, the the other thing I, I wanted to mention to you, uh, two things actually. Okay. Um, Epic or Epic, as I I've been going back and forth on it. <laughs> yeah. uh, Epic is now MGM Plus. Whoa, they made the change, huh? Yeah, they are. They're, they're MGM Plus, and uh, and I have to say, by the way, Deep State. When I was talking about that, that's actually an MGM Plus original. Oh, um, it was an Epic original. Now it's an MGM Plus right. original. Right. But you can access it through uh, Prime. Oh, there you go. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that voting for the Academy Awards uh, began on uh, last uh, Thursday. Mm. And um, so I've already cast my ballot for uh, what I think are the top 10 best films of the year, the top five animated features, and the top five animated shorts. Mm. And voting for the uh, Academy uh, nominations closes on Tuesday, tomorrow. Wow. There you go. There you yeah. go, Dave. Well, so you did your due diligence as a member of the Academy. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I, you know, <laughs> a week ago, I was at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater to see the bake-off of all of the animated shorts. Nice. Uh, you know, there was 15 of them. And out of the 15, you you know, the, the ballot that I just cast... Uh, is to select the five nominees for the award. I love it. Uh, so uh, that's that's happening. And, and you know, because I'm in the um, uh, short film and animated uh, branch of the Academy, um, I vote on the animated feature, the animated shorts, and uh, all Academy members weigh in on Best Picture. Gotcha. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm not going to talk about my ballot or what I, any of my predictions because, you know, the uh, voting is, is open and it closes tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I don't want to discuss anything until all the voting is finished. Well, there you go. And, and, that, and as you should. So, right. So yeah. looking forward to you and the rest of the votes coming in, it'll be interesting to see who walks mm -hmm. away with the statues this year. Uh, yeah. I will say that uh, I'm sure the award ceremony will be uh, a lot different uh, this year, considering what happened in the Golden Globes with with uh, Eddie Murphy, because <laughs> that was hilarious. I'll be honest. Oh my gosh! Did you, you hear know, about that? I, I uh, honestly, it, it, it's you know, it's just it, it, it's a crazy time of year with all of these award shows. Well, if you haven't seen what Eddie Murphy said. I think it's a gift that keeps giving. So okay. I'll just leave it leave it at that. All righty. Well, I think it's the the part where we go head first into Skull Rock Podcast. Ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Well, there you are. Mark G. Parker gets installed as chairman of the board. Dave, seven year member of the Disney board and director. Executive Chairman of Nike will secede Susan E. Arnold, who will not stand for re-election pursuant to the 15-year term limit under the Board of Tenure Policy. So the board is now reduced to 11 members. Uh, Dave, what do you think about this big news? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff going on here. I mean, uh, 
you know, Bob Iger, uh, you know, there was a lot of fanfare of, of him coming back and there's still a lot of good feelings about that, but he's under a tremendous amount of pressure because of the fact that you've got some uh, activist investors out there who are taking positions in the company. They, they see the company as being uh, wounded. Uh, and uh, Nelson Peltz, who uh, has the uh, train investment fund, uh, which has like eight and a half, nine billion dollars under management. They've taken a nine hundred million dollar stake in the company, and Nelson Peltz wants a uh, board seat. Uh, and there's going to be a proxy fight. Uh, the you know Iger and uh, the company have already come out saying uh, they want uh, shareholders to vote against that uh, uh, Nelson's uh, Nelson Peltz uh, seat. Um, and just vote for the, uh, the, what the board is recommending. And, uh, you know, Nelson Peltz for our listeners, uh, is an activist investor who has done these types of proxy fights and taken board seats with, uh, Procter and Gamble and PepsiCo and other companies. And, and he has a track record of boosting the, uh, share price, uh, of, um, a lot of these companies when he gets involved with them. Uh, but you know, Disney, as we all know, is a very different company. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, it's not about, you know, filling bottles with, uh, flavored sugar water. Uh, <laughs> and it's not about turning out, you know, detergent, yeah. Uh, and beauty products, uh, you know, Disney is a, is a very different type of company. And, you know, I, I sit there and say, look, a lot of what happened to the company over the last several years is self-inflicted. You know, these are self-inflicted wounds and Bob Iger is back in the driver's seat. So I say, you know, give him, you know, give him a year to, to write the ship. And he's doing a lot of, he's making a lot of good moves. I have to say, you know, like, you know, uh, with rolling back some of these price hikes at the parks and, you know, making less expensive tickets, uh, available more, more days of the year and those types of things. I think the, those, those kinds of moves are, are being applauded by, uh, the fans out there. Uh, we definitely so, applaud that yeah. for sure. So when you say activist uh, yeah. investor, what does that what does that mean exactly? That means somebody who's got their own ideas. Uh, you know, they want to come in, get a board seat, and push their agenda. Oh, gotcha. You know, and okay. and, and Nelson Peltz's agenda is to raise the stock price. Well, uh, yeah. to you know, to to squeeze value out of a company, and uh, you know, look, you have to go back to Walt Disney, who founded the company with his brother Roy O, and you have to sit there and say, you know. It's not, you know, Walt, Walt said it's not always about making money. Right. You know, right. And, and and there's a certain amount of truth to that. And, and, you know, with a public company like Disney, it's a fine line you have to walk because you do have to, you know, uh, create value for your shareholders and your investors. But at the same time, I, I think you can't turn your back on the founding values of the company. That's true. Uh, and I think the further we talked about the further the Disney company is removed from Walt, then their the the vision kind of gets Xeroxed and Xeroxed and Xeroxed and Xeroxed, and you just kind of get further from 
the the core. It gets, it get, the it gets core. very diffused. It gets yeah, it gets diffused. So, and a lot of companies do that over time. So yeah. uh, we'll see what happens with this this shakeup. But it's more than optics. I think a lot of those things though are plotted by the Disney fans out there. So we only time will tell. Um, but tied into that, Dave Disney rolling back on popular price hikes at the theme parks that were made under former CEO Bob Chapek. So they're rolling back prices. They're bringing more value, supposedly. Um, they're bringing back some Disney uh, credits for dining and things of that nature. So according to a letter to Disney employees seen by the insiders, Josh DeMauro, who is the parks chairman, said services that were free under Iger's initial tenure would revert back to being complimentary, right? So there's some yeah. parking and different things of that, increasing the number of days park tickets sold at their lowest price for at $104. They would definitely give you more value with that, um, I think it's a step in the right direction. I, I look. I I think all of these moves are good moves, and they're uh, they're going to bring back stability. You're not going to have as many upset fans as ha- has been happening uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, and, and you got to realize. I mean, Al John, you know as well as I do. We're both fans of the company. You know, you 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 want the company to do well, and you want the company to perform uh but at the same time you want the company to respect the values of its founders yeah i think that's what it is it, you know being disney shareholders i think it's important for for you to yes you you expect return on your investment but i also believe that the people that are there and and walt did this of course you know being his company he led investors in a way of, hey, look, you're not just investing in the Disney brand, but you're investing in ideals, education, entertainment, you know, that is meant to be shared with families. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's yeah. kind of his core core thing. You're investing in art and the propagation of art and in, in film and cinema and 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 all these really great things that enrich people's lives it's, it's it once again money making will fall into place but you know i think that's where he he and his family kind of charmed those investors into this is our singular vision and now that there's other people's agendas in the mix then you fall short of having a singular vision maybe oh no i i i absolutely agree and uh you know look I, at this point in time, I would sit there and, and, and uh, you know, vote with Bob Iger uh, when you get your proxy. You know, you, you want to vote for what the company's recommending, not some outsider, because I, honestly, it smacks of, you know, Saul Steinberg back in the early 1980s, you know, who wanted to take over the company and sell off the film library and sell the parks off. And, you know, he he just wanted to squeeze as much value out of Disney as he possibly could pocket himself and to hell with, you know, the future and what the company, you know, could be or would be or wouldn't be, right. you know? And, uh, you know, again, I sit there and say, it's not all about money. And I think Bob Iger has a mandate for two years and he has to get a succession plan put in place. Um, that that's sort of top the top of the that that's something he has he has to identify somebody at least in the next six or six or nine months 
and put that person in maybe as a, you know, a chief operating officer uh, to, you know, basically be groomed to take over as CEO at the end of 2024, you know, two years is going to go by very quickly. Exactly. It certainly. Will. You know, yeah, so, definitely. Well, he's got Bob, Bob Iger's got a full plate of stuff to deal with. <laughs> I, full do not, plate. I do not envy him for sure. But well, you know what? He's yeah. got the track record and I, and I think everybody's got confidence. He's going to make this thing happen. I feel like uh, if there were any other alternatives, they would have already done it. And I feel that they've tried it and it didn't work out so good. So, yeah. and, and you know, and Bob Iger to, you know, his admission, you know, I mean, he handpicked Bob Chapek to, to kind of do this and, just didn't work out. Hey, you, you know something you, you, you can't, you can't win a hundred percent of the time, but Bob Iger is pretty darn close to it. You know what I mean? He, he had a really great 15 year run as a CEO sure, uh, and did some amazing things for the company. And that's what people have to really be re- you know, focused on. Did everything work? No. And one of the, one of the things that didn't work was the succession. Yeah. You know? And so he gets, he gets a do over. He gets a do-over. Well, you know, yeah. once again, all eyes, uh, the world is watching, and we look forward to seeing what kind of moves a Disney company makes in order to kind of get out of this perceived, uh, you know, slump that they're in. Well, it's not a perceived slump; it is definitely a slump. But yeah, uh, but yeah, but you know, I do want to say, Al John, the stock price has really gone up quite a bit <laughs> over the last week and a half. Well, thank goodness, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, it's it, it's it's literally just shy of a hundred bucks now yeah, a share. I, Exactly. You know, it, and, and it was as low as, you know, it was in the 80s. Well, yeah, this is the time to buy Disney stock, y'all, if uh, you haven't already figured that out. Um, okay. That's exactly right. So speaking of time, uh, you know, 2024 can't come soon enough for me and my wife because we are huge <laughs> Walking Dead fans. And we love Andrew Lincoln and Anai Guerrero. They're amazing actors. And we'll be continuing on with this franchise with the release of the Walking Dead universe as it expands. They've got this uh, brand new Rick Grimes and Michonne series beginning production this year for a 2024 debut. Uh, they've got the different sequels, kind of with Norman Reedus, who's got the Walking Dead Daryl Dixon show. And you have Dead City featuring Jeffrey Dean Morgan, one of my favorites, and Lauren Cohen. But. Fear the Walking Dead with Lenny James, uh, who we love Lenny James, is going to be saying its goodbyes with the eighth and final season on AMC. It's really sad to see, but I feel like if there's another spinoff to be had, Lenny James would be an amazing character to kind of follow through this universe. I feel like he is kind of the kung fu David Carradine kind of character, him and his walking staff uh, going from place to place, helping people in this zombie uh, apocalypse. Uh, we love Lenny James, so I wish him luck. And I, I look forward to the last and final season of Fear, The Walking Dead on AMC. AMC All right. Plus, yeah. Uh, one of your favorites, you love Better Call Saul, don't you, Dave? Oh, I do. I, I thought that was a terrific series. Well, it looks like they've got a follow-up teaser going up and it looks like you're going to get your wish about another sequel lucky hank has also rounded out its guest cast with oscar nunez tom boyer and kyle mclaughlin and chris dominopoulos it looks like uh, the follow-up is going to be happening dave lucky hank called uh, what is it lucky hank uh formerly titled the straight man so uh there you go dave we've got another walking uh, i'm sorry not walking dead but better call saul uh universe <laughs> you know i love bob odenkirk uh i think he's terrific 
Yes. And I'm looking forward to this uh, very much. Well, yeah, definitely. It's going to be great. And um, now here's another, some sad news this week, Dave. It seems like a very sad week for the world of Oh my gosh. Al John, this is like, you know, there, there was like a slaughter of celebrities. It, yeah. It's, uh, it's insane. Um, I had to make sure that we didn't leave any stone unturned this week, but uh, one of my favorite guitarists of all time who was on tour, Jeff Beck passes away at the age of 78. His family said the rocker suddenly contracted bacterial meningitis and peacefully passed away this past Tuesday. That, that's the, that's one of those freakish things, you know, <sighs> I mean, you just, it, it, it it's like, it happens, you know, and it, an otherwise healthy person could get taken out by something like that. 100%. I mean, he was a rock and roll hall of famer, uh, got inducted with the Yardbirds. And by the way, if you haven't checked out his rock and roll hall of fame speech, it's just brilliant because he basically said, forget about these guys. They kicked me out of the band and <laughs> 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 basically turned off and dropped the mic, which was amazing. But his family said on Wednesday, it is with deep and profound sadness that we share the news of Jeff Beck's passing after suddenly contracting bacterial meningitis. Um, family asked for privacy while they grieve uh, with this profound loss. And uh, yes, Dave, you know, I have to say, Al John, uh, I was familiar with Jeff Beck's career. Mm-hmm. I, I think he was one of the greatest guitarists ever to grace the rock and roll stages. Yes. Um, and I have to tell you, I did not know that he was asked to replace Brian Jones in the Rolling Stones after Brian Jones passed away, that that he was the he was. Richards and and Jagger's uh, choice to replace Brian Jones after he after Brian Jones drowned. Oh yeah, and he turned it down. And yeah. then they asked Ronnie Wood. Oh yeah, oh yeah, one hundred. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, yeah, you know, he was one of the must have guitarists on 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 your band or in your in your um, you know in your studio. You know, not only did he have that uh, opportunity, but the Jeff Beck group, you know, really did amazing things during the eighties. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. And then he's been on a bunch of different songs too. You probably don't even know he, he's had so many different hits with so many different people. And of course, more recently, uh, Beck's most recent album, 18 was a collaborative project with Johnny Depp. And right. And Johnny Depp was touring with him last year. Yeah. And my understanding is Johnny Depp was there when he passed uh, by oh, his bedside. Man. And, uh, you know, they're tremendous pals. Um, but, but once again, I encourage people to go out there and check out um, Soul Record 1975's Blow by Blow, which is something I listen to a lot. It's got a little bit of jazz roots to it. I think you'll really dig it. Um, so please check out blow by blow. And he, he, yeah. he also played on soundtracks for movies. He certainly did. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just like, I mean, talk about an incredibly diverse career. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, uh, you know, a bunch of different, uh, you know, guitar solos, they just go back in his back catalog. I mean, he is one of Rolling Stone's most prolific guitarist. He's in the top 100 for sure. And in many people's eyes, probably the number one or number two guitarist of all time and known for his great vibrato. So uh, seek, seek out Jeff Beck this week. And, and yeah, and, I, I think in Rolling Stone, they listed him as number five. And yeah. I was curious who, who were the four ahead of him? Because uh, uh, I mean, honestly, you know, it, it, that becomes very subjective, right? Because oh, it's like, yeah. it's like Eric Clapton, mm-hmm. right? 
Mm-hmm. You got Jimmy Page uh-huh. from Led Zeppelin, right? And Jimmy and, Hendrix. And, and who else? Maybe Jimmy know? Hendrix, perhaps. Keith Richards, right? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, these are all great guitarists. Man, there are so many. Um, and he really is, you know, I, I would say um, so influential in terms of the guitar tone and style, for sure. Um, you know, and our, my company has worked with Jeff Beck in the past, and uh, we definitely, he will be missed, for sure. So here we have another celebrity passing, Adam Rich. I grew up watching Eight is Enough, like many people out there. The child star dies at the age of 54. It's America's little brother. He died Saturday in the Brentwood section of L.A. at the uh, Los Angeles, uh, well, the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner's Office said the cause of death is under investigation, but was not considered suspicious. Um, so, man, he's you been know, through this a is, lot. This is just another sad child actor story. You know, I mean, Adam Rich, he lived longer than most uh, of these uh, child actors that, that you know, seem to, um, you know, die way too young. Uh, but, you know, he had his fair share of um, uh, demons that he had to deal with through his life. For sure. Absolutely. Um, once again, though, he is known for... Um, being a great character actor, he's been on every show on the 80s from Six Million Dollar Man to The Love Boat, Baywatch, but he's definitely going to be known uh, for his role in uh, Eight is Enough, so please check that out. And uh, another celebrity passing, uh, Dorothy Tristan, actress in Clute, Scarecrow, and The Looking Glass, dies at the age of 88. She had a long battle with Alzheimer's, and uh, once again, a very sad week for sure. And, uh, and, and, you know, very recognizable actress. If you, if you saw her picture, you know, you might not recognize the name, but when you see her photo from her heyday in films, you go, oh, yeah, I, I know who that is. I, I've seen her. I remember her. Yes, absolutely. You know, she's been in so many different movies like Down and Out in Beverly Hills, uh, The Looking Glass, uh, Prancer, and so much more. So once again, please seek out those films and uh, relive her great work. But last but not least, though, uh, we do have uh, another celebrity passing, and that's Lisa Marie Presley. Like I needed to say her last name. Um, She's to be buried with her son over there in Graceland. Uh, She had passed away. Uh, died of cardiac arrest on Thursday, two days after attending the Golden Globes that we kind of alluded to earlier in the film, uh, cheering on Austin Butler, who won for portraying her dad, Elvis, in the uh, biopic. And, uh, you know, what else could I say, Dave? I mean, she was definitely following in her dad's footsteps in a lot of different ways. Uh, You know, she was a singer, talented uh, singer and songwriter in her own right. Uh, She released, I think, maybe three solo albums or something. And I remember her uh, kind of in the in the aughts, kind of going out there and releasing some stuff post her divorce from Michael Jackson at the time. But uh, it's it's just very shocking. And um, you know, she didn't look well at the Golden Globes. She had she she seemed a bit frail. She had to hold on to people. Uh, and I'd be curious to see what the medical examiner has to say. I mean, it's just you know what a waste. Certainly is. Um, once again, Lisa Marie at the age of, uh, what was it, 50, 54? 54. 54, 54. She passed away. My goodness. Yeah, she was going to be 55 uh, sh- uh, soon. Ugh. But I mean, geez, I, you know, it, it's crazy. She's going to be laid to rest next to her son who committed suicide when he was 27 a couple of years ago. 
Uh, she's going to be laid to rest uh, next to her son at Graceland. Very sad indeed. Well, rest in peace, everyone. Uh, you'll be missed. But in this next segment, here we are. We're talking about the origins of the True Life Adventures with DTA Gaze. Enjoy. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. All right, Al John. Once again, we've got another fantastic guest. We've got Didier Gaz, who is a Disney historian and an author. And his latest book is The Origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. Uh, Didier, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Thank you so much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you and Al John. Yes, it's great to have you on. And I have to tell you, I and I want to confess to our listeners, I generally read a book cover to cover when we have an author on. And I had ordered this book and it was, you know, it's fairly new. It's just been released. Uh, and I ordered the book. And I didn't get it until yesterday. So I haven't read it from cover to cover. But I had been friends with and worked with Roy E. Disney. And, you know, he was involved with the uh, True Life Adventures back in the 50s and a lot of the nature films. So I'm, I've am i seen them all. And I think I'm going to be able to muddle through this interview with you because you're going to do most of the talking. All right, Didier? Sure, with, with immense pleasure. All right. So the first the first question I would ask you, I mean, this is an absolutely beautiful book and we're going to be putting the links in where where our listeners can order this book uh, into the show notes. But the, the first question I would ask you is, how did you get involved in this subject matter and where did it start? Because I know that you fall down a rabbit hole when you start to look into these types of topics. It, it's kind of a really funny story. Uh, it, it really started by me researching my other book series, um, They Drew As They Please, The Hidden Art of Disney. And to do that, I was researching the life and art of quite a lot of Disney concept artists. And one of the ones that I identified that I found could be interesting was um, a story artist uh, who worked on quite a few children's books called uh, Hauling Sea Hauling. And um, Hauling Sea Hauling had been hired by the Disney Studio, I think, in the late 30s or early 1940s. And I found his style very interesting. Uh, but more importantly, I located quite a few of his papers and quite a lot of his artwork. And when I started looking at those papers and that artwork, I saw a lot of material which was clearly related to Disney, but which I really didn't understand. I didn't understand to which project uh, this pertained. I didn't understand uh, what this all was about. And so that remained for me a mystery for quite a while. Well, uh, fast forward a few months or a few years, and then I stumbled upon the, uh, the papers of, uh, of a couple who became the first cinematographers on the True Life Adventures, Al and Elma Milot. And by looking at their papers, I started connecting dots with what I had found in the Holding Sea Holding papers. And so I was like, oh my, this whole story is starting to make a lot more sense. This is starting to become an absolutely fascinating story. And that's how it all started. I realized at that point that there was a whole 
origin story of the True Life Adventures that it was that was in front of my eyes, and that I needed to start organizing the pieces of that whole jigsaw puzzle to really to really understand what the whole story looked like. You know, I, I, I have to say, um, uh, you know, again, from personal experience, when, when you start to, you start with a little crumb and you, you do fall down a rabbit hole chasing after more crumbs, it becomes an obsession. And would you, would you feel like you got obsessed with this? Oh, I always get obsessed when I stop working <laughs> on one of those projects. There is no doubt about that. No doubt about Yes. You know, one of the things I thought was fascinating uh, about um, uh, your book, uh, because I did have a chance to read into part of the first chapter, uh, was about Jake Day, uh, who was from Damascata, Maine, uh, and had uh, become a layout guy out in at the Disney Studios in Los Angeles. And how uh, all of a sudden they latched on to him because he had brought with him a lot of photographs of uh, his native town and his home in Maine. That, that's right. They did. So they needed, uh, they needed research material for the, the settings uh, of, of uh, the forest where Bambi would, would take place. And, uh, and so they wanted uh, uh, background material about the forest of Maine. And so Jack Bay, who was from Maine and had shot all of those pictures, brought them to the studio one day, and uh, Disney loved them, Walt loved them, uh, the other artists loved them, and they said, can you can you get more? Uh, and so they sent him uh, to Maine to, to, uh, uh, to basically spend quite a season there and, and uh, shoot a lot of more uh, additional pictures. But when Jake um, went back to Maine to do that, he asked a friend of his to uh, to accompany him. And what's really fun, what's really great, is that I realized that that friend of his uh, had kept a diary uh, at the time. Uh, and so for the very first time, we're able to read about the adventures of uh, Jack Day and, and his friend Lester Hall uh, directly from their first-hand testimony of, of what took place at the time. And we can follow them through that whole trip. Uh, and I also located quite a few of the photographs from that trip that the family had kept. Uh, and, and so for the very first time, we can take the, the, our time machine and, and go back and, and be there with them and, and go on that whole trip. And obviously, what's really, really interesting with that whole trip, and which uh, obviously ties it to the True Life Adventures, is that the methodology of the work, the fact that it's two people in the field and that they send back some material to the Disney studio and then receive feedback and so on and so forth, is exactly the methodology that, that would be used later on on the, on the True Life Adventures um, eight years later, uh, ten years later. You know, one one of the interesting things that I I took note of as I was uh, going through uh, part of the book here uh, was the fact that um, that trip to Maine happened uh, ten years before the True Life Adventures really started, uh, that's right. That's right. And, and obviously it was it was research for Bambi. But uh, the question I would pose to you is: Do you, do you get the sense that this planted the seed for Walt? Uh, to to do some nature films, I think in part it did, yes, uh, and and that's why I called that chapter Genesis. Uh, it it's definitely the, the first the first seed. Um, it wasn't enough though. It it wasn't the only element. Uh, you start seeing uh, uh, a few other roots uh, of the True Life Adventures um, develop during World War Two, 
Uh, and that's, um, there are two uh, or three uh, uh, sort of um, uh, routes that you, you really see appear during World War II. Uh, first, there are obviously the educational projects. Uh, Walt realizes that uh, uh, because he's forced to do that uh, for the studio to survive, uh, he can actually produce some very interesting educational projects uh, and educational shorts and educational movies. Uh, first, to train the troops uh, and then uh, to educate a wider a wider audience, uh, and so that become that becomes one of the roots of the of the true life adventures. The uh, the other thing is during World War Two, he produces this uh, educational um, live action movie about the Amazon River uh, called the Amazon Awakens, and there you really see. Uh, the origins of the true life adventures, the methodology that's employed, the people who are in charge of that project, uh, the, the touch points uh, at the studio that the cinematographer who's in the field has, all of those people are exactly the same as the ones who will start working on the true life adventures uh, quite a few years later. Uh, and so that, that movie is clearly, clearly, clearly at the root of the true life adventures. And, and of course, I, I mean, when you start talking about the educational films, there were so many of them during the World War II period. But, you know, some that popped to mind are like uh, the grain that built the hemisphere, uh, which was all about corn. Uh, so so you're getting this sort of docu doc, documentary style uh, storytelling with animation. That's absolutely right. And 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 once Walt has produced all of those movies during World War II, he realizes by 1944 that uh, World War II is coming to an end, that the Allies are winning the war. And he's starting to plan for the future. And uh, planning for the future, he realizes that there might be um, a new field uh, opening up uh, for his business, which is the field of uh, uh, what's called non-theatrical um, movies, uh, basically educational movies in schools, in churches, uh, in, in all sorts of community centers and, and so on and so forth, uh, because you have those uh, portable projectors that are starting to sell quite a lot around the, the U.S. And so he's like, hmm, this is an interesting new field. This is an interesting sort of new technology. I, I'm wondering if I could get in there and, and, and really develop that, that business. Uh, and so he starts thinking... Um, with a few people at the studio, uh, including a person called Carl Nater, uh, and, and also uh, that artist that I was mentioning earlier, Holding C. Holding, about what could be produced uh, for that, that new uh, emerging field uh, in the entertainment space and in, in the educational space. And so the studio starts researching dozens of projects in all sorts of directions um, for that new field, including uh, uh, a, a history of music, including uh, a history of the human body, uh, including um, like every single subject you can think of was being studied at, at the time by the studio. And to me, that 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 always felt like it was the seeds that were being planted for eventually the Disney educational division. Uh, where a lot of those films would would reside and be rented out to schools and things like that. Uh, but it seems like the True Life Adventures is kind of an offshoot of that. There were so many offshoots of that. Uh, you're absolutely right. The, 
this is at the root, obviously, of the educational uh, company uh, that, that, that is created later on. Um, that's without a doubt the, the immediate uh, consequence of, of that project. However, you have lots and lots and lots of offshoots. So the True Life Adventures is one. Uh, the People and Places series is another one. Um, Toot Whistle Punk and Movement Melody are another one, um, amazingly yeah. enough. Um, and, and you have quite a few uh, uh, goofy cartoons and, and others that are also offshoots of, of those uh, uh, initial ideas. Uh, even uh, Donald and the Wheel uh, is an offshoot of, of those uh, educational projects. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I can't help but think that up until that point, there really wasn't uh, any kind of, quote, nature films that were going on. Uh, I mean, I could not think of anything prior to uh, the True Life Adventures in, unless I'm blocking it out because I believe the True Life Adventures really started uh, what would would be followed by Mutual of Omaha and Jacques Cousteau and, you know, all of those kinds of uh, uh, nature films and television shows. Well, there were some... Um some pictures about the animals and some documentary about animals and so on and so forth. A lot of them were on the uh, uh, on the lecture circuit, um, and and you had those uh, um, those pro- professional cinematographers that were really monetizing this by by presenting their movies in churches and, and schools and and other places like that. But but that was probably the first series really on on the big screen. And that mixed both education and entertainment on, on the big screen. And, and I, I, I would think, I don't know, and having not seen some of those early presentations, I would imagine those were kind of dry, more scientific, uh, zoological type of presentations. Uh, whereas with Walt Disney, he was he was creating entertainment for the masses, and so he was overlaying a storyline uh, onto his nature films. So that that's absolutely correct. Now, the, the part which is extremely interesting is the first of the True Life Adventures. Of course, was Seal Island. Uh, released in 1948. And the the very interesting part is it doesn't start as Seal Island. Um, it really starts as Walt being interested in this new frontier, which is Alaska. Mm-hmm. And he sends a team of cinematographers, uh, the couple Al and Al Mamilot, to Alaska for a year in 1946. And he basically tells them, Film, film as much as you can, film whatever you find interesting. Uh, he also sends them some storyboards and a proposed script, but which really has sequences that are not just about the seals, which are about a million other things, about industry, about uh, um, uh, artists um, that carve um, totems, uh, about uh, local... Um, um, uh, indigenous people and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and the Milads for one year keep sending back um, hundreds of rolls of, of films um, and, and the studio gets those and by the end of ni- 1946 they still have no idea what to do with them. And in fact, and, and that's where it becomes really fascinating, by the end of 1947 they still have no idea what to do with them. 
Um, and it takes, it is about six months to seven months before the release of Seal Island that Walt has this brilliant idea, which is to say, focus on the seals. Forget the humans, forget the industry, forget everything else. Focus on the seals. We might have a story there. We might have something there. Uh, and so, but that comes very, very, very late in the process. It's, yeah. It was amazing to me to, to find out how late in the process that that came. And so he organizes all of that with his artist into what becomes Seal Island. And with the rest of the material, uh, what's really interesting is that he produces the first of the people and places, uh, which is the Alaskan Eskimo. Uh, yes. and so from one, one adventure in Alaska, uh, and you have to imagine what an adventure it was, because it, it is 1946. It's very, very primitive uh, in terms of, of, of uh, the, 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 the way you live in Alaska at the time and the amenities you have access to or not have access to. I mean, at some point, Elma Milot uh, writes in her diary, she says, uh, first bath in two months. Wow. Uh, and, and so you're really, and, and she's, by the way, when she goes there, uh, when she travels with her husband there, she's pregnant. So can you imagine that? Wow. I mean, she, she travels to Alaska in those conditions, pregnant. That's uh, crazy. Uh, then, then a few months later, gives birth and then goes back to, to, to be with her husband uh, in Alaska. I, I mean, it's really fascinating. And, but I, I love the fact that at the beginning of Chapter 1, you debunk the tall tale. You know, where, uh, you know, the story of, uh, you know, this the this guy had a store in Alaska and Walt Disney walked in and said, how would you like to make some pictures for me up here? You know, I, I, can you talk a little bit about where where some of these things come from? I mean, is it just a telephone game over decades of people, you know, sort of embellishing stories? Well, you know, Walt was a storyteller and uh, and he always said that he was a storyteller. And, and his press department was, uh, his PR department was really good at, at selling really good stories. And so uh, they would plant those stories in, in magazines, which were lies, they had a kernel of truth in them, uh, <laughs> but they were, they were very much embellished uh, and simplified. Uh, and so uh, in that origin story that's, that's told and retold and that is told for the first time in Regal Scientist, um, you have this beautiful story of Walt meeting um, Al Milot and, uh, and, and asking Al Milot to, uh, to do his new uh, to shoot some pictures for him. And Al Milot says, what do you want me to shoot? And uh, Walt says, well, whatever you want to shoot, you know. And, and Al is like, no, I don't really know. And then I send back a lot of material, says Al. And then Walt says, I want more seals. Well, yeah, it's a nice story. It's it's most of it is not true, but it's a very nice story. So really, uh, so really it was being done. It was done for marketing and, and promotion and, and to, to make it more interesting uh, to, to the public. To make it more simple, to make it more uh, easy, to make it easier to digest. And, and it worked. It yeah. worked so well that uh, 50 years later, 60 years later, we still believe that story. Uh, but, then, uh, but then when you start digging in deeper, you're like, oh, the real story is 10 times more interesting, 10 times richer. Uh, there are so many avenues to follow, so many abandoned projects in the middle, 
so many things that that happened before uh, before that that movie was was actually produced. And you're like, this is the story I really want to tell because it's a story that I'm fascinated by, and I'm sure that others are going to be really interested in it. When you know the, they they obviously got two pictures out of all this footage that the Malat shot in Alaska, uh, but uh, once Seal Island was released, obviously it, it, it was the first, I believe, to of the True Life Adventures to win an Academy Award for best uh, short subject. Am I right? Yeah, I mean it was the first True Life Adventure to be released, and it was the first one. You're absolutely right to win an Academy Award. Yeah, and, and, and because of that, did, did Walt feel like you know we're on to something here? Uh, uh, I mean, would he have continued uh, making these had he had uh, you know if the film didn't do as well, or or was was that not a, of interest to him? Was he just more fascinated with the subject matters? I think he realized early that, that he was onto something because he, he actually sends the Milot on several other adventures before the release of Sea Island. Uh, and so he realized, you know what, uh, th- there is really something there. Uh, first, he's, uh, um, he's exploring at least five or six different ideas of true life adventures that are uh, eventually abandoned. But he's also sending the Milots on at least two adventures, one uh, uh, one. That, that is an adventure on the Colorado River, which mm-hmm. in the end is abandoned uh, because he doesn't find enough uh, exciting material uh, in that trip. But then another one, which is really he sends them a lot to, um, uh, to Montana uh, to film what, what will become uh, Beaver Valley. Uh, and and that's, uh, uh, that's being shot while, uh, uh, while Seal Island is not yet ready to be released. Uh, so uh, he's, he's really thinking... Uh, uh, well in advance of, of uh, his new releases and, and realizes, I think, quite early that, that he has um, the potential for a really fascinating series. What, what was the most interesting thing? And I'm sure there's probably many to choose from, but what was the most interesting fact that you uncovered in the research for the True Life Adventures? Well, more than a fact in itself, um, for me, there were two things that were particularly interesting. First, uh, I was able to locate uh, the lost uh, diary and the lost autobiography of the Milots. Uh, and there was literally only one copy of that manuscript that survived in one museum. And even the family didn't know that that manuscript survived. They had, uh, they had a few uh, odd uh, pages from that manuscript, but they didn't have the whole thing. And when I was looking for more photographs, I contacted that museum in, in Alaska. And I said, well, I'm looking for the photographs that I know you have. And I know you have a bit of correspondence from the Milots. Uh, I would love to see all of that. And the, uh, the curator came back to me and said, oh, and, and by the way, we also have a manuscript uh, which seems to be an autobiography. Would you be interested in that? I was like, oh my God, this is the last autobiography. We found the full manuscript. I can't believe that. So that, that was a big, big moment uh, in, the, in the process. And, and because of that, I mean, what, what's going to happen with that un, unpublished manuscript? Is there any, any plans to publish it or, or to, to, you know, get it out there? We're, we're trying to publish it. Um, it's um, there are a few hurdles for that. Uh, it was written, um, I believe, in the 
1960s or early early 1960s, and so the cultural sensitivities were a bit different at the time. Sure, uh, sure. So that does complicate things slightly, uh, especially because we would love to release it uh, with a lot of illustrations, and so uh, th- there is a whole uh, approval process that that is involved in there uh, because of who owned the, the, the pictures and so on and so forth. But yes, we're we're working on that idea. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I would imagine though, with a good editing pass, uh, some of those, uh, uh, or most of, or if not all of those, uh, um, issues, uh, re, you know, uh, about cultural sensitivity and stuff like that, that, that could all get adjusted, uh, oh, to, to, to today's can. standards. And I think, uh, you know, a simple note at the beginning would be sufficient to, to let people know that that's what happened, but this is still an autobiography. Sure. Sure. You mm-hmm. I think that's great. That's fantastic. Um, uh, you know, while we're on it, uh, I, I do want to ask because this book is published, uh, as a Hyperion, Historical Alliance academic monograph as part of a series of these books that are being done. And can you talk a little bit about what the Hyperion Historical Alliance is and what the mission is for the organization? And I just want our listeners to know you're a founder, uh, you're the founder of the Hyperion Historical Alliance, and I am actually a member of uh, that alliance. So I know what it is, but I want our, I want you to tell what our listeners what it is. Absolutely, Dave. So the Hyperion Historical Alliance is an official nonprofit that was started uh, unofficially about 13 years ago, but officially, I believe, about seven years ago. And... Um, the uh, the idea when we founded that nonprofit was twofold. Uh, on the one side, we, we realized that a lot of documents related to Disney history that are not preserved by the Disney archives or by the animation research library, meaning that are not preserved by Disney, um, those documents were about to disappear forever. Um, they were in the, the collections of the families of some of the artists. They were in the attics. Uh, of the houses of some of those families and so on and so forth. And, and a lot of those families were not getting younger. And uh, uh, we knew that one day when, when they would uh, no longer be there, their collections uh, would either be thrown into the trash or sold or, or just um, not being taken care of uh, the way they should. And so one of the missions of the Hyperion Historical Alliance was to work with the family of those artists to say, let's scan all of that in high resolution so that those documents be preserved for future generations of Disney historians. So that was one mission. The other mission is we realized um, a few years later that what would also be very interesting would be to put all of those documents in context and uh, in their right historical context and be able to share those uh, more widely with um, with the audience that's out there and that's really interested in Disney history. Uh, and so in order to do that, the Hyperion Historical Alliance started two publication projects. One is uh, what we call the Hyperion Historical Alliance Annual. And as its name indicates, this is the magazine that's released uh, once every year uh, and that contains very in-depth um, essays about Disney history. Uh, and so we, we try to explore aspects of Disney history that have not been explored before, 
uh, with a very detailed endnote so that people know exactly where the information comes from. And then parallel to that, we, uh, we started an even more ambitious project, which is a series of hardcover, fully illustrated monographs. Uh, and, and those monographs started with the release in 2019 of um, The Making of Fun and Fancy Free by historian J.B. Kaufman. Uh, and the second volume uh, of that series is the one uh, I just released, which is uh, uh, The Origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. Now, the, the, what makes those monographs really special are um, two or three things. Uh, the first thing is, obviously, the, the research is very, very in-depth and, and complete, again, with, with very detailed endnotes. But the other, other thing that's really, really important is that we're, we're, um, those are really fully illustrated monographs, which contain, uh, in average, uh, about 200 to 240 documents, uh, illustrations. And we try and make sure that at least 90% or 95% of the illustrations in those monographs are things that have not been seen in book form before. Uh, and so we, we try to really bring to the surface a lot of visual documents that no one uh, was aware of uh, before. And so that's very, uh, that's very exciting. And, and there is a lot more coming in that monograph series. And, and if you have a few minutes, I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you about those. Well, I, I, we, we can we can plug some of those later, but I really wanted to uh, just have our listeners understand where, where this was coming from. And, and essentially, you know, you're you're covering topics uh, uh, that would not be uh, covered otherwise. Uh, these are these are uh, uh, narrow focused, uh, detailed uh, topics that aren't going to be published by Disney Publishing or any other publishing company because it, it's got a small reader base. Uh, it's a specialized reader base. And that's what really monographs are. Um, and, and I think that that's what's so great about these uh, is that these stories get to get out into the world to the people who are really interested in it. And it's not driven by, well, you have to sell 10 or 20,000 copies or anything like that. That that's all absolutely correct. Dave. But that was a big part of the inspiration uh, behind that series. Yeah. And, and obviously I, I take it you, you've rewatched all of the true life adventure films. I've, I've rewatched until now uh, Seal Island and Beaver Valley and the Olympic Elk, which are the, the subject that I've been focusing on until now. Okay. Uh, obviously, Seal Island for the first volume, and then uh, Beaver Valley and the Olympic Elk for the volume I'm working on at the moment. Which, which will be the, the second volume of this series. Which is going to be the second volume of this uh, sort of true life adventure related uh, uh, series. That being said, it's not going to be purely about the true life adventures. That second volume. Uh -huh. That second volume uh, in 1952. It's really interesting, right uh, around the release of either Beaver Valley of or the Olympic Elk. I can't remember right now. But Walt says, you know, we're, we're not just working on a series about nature. Uh, what, what we're thinking of at adventures in nature, which is really the true life adventures. We're also working on at least two other parallel series. One is going to be Adventures in History, and that will start with uh, a short called Ben and Me. Uh, and then uh, we're working on a series called Adventures in Music, um, and, and we have a few that are already in, in production. Uh, and so 
that second volume is going to be Walt Disney's Adventure in Music, uh, Walt Disney's Adventures in Music, History, and Nature. Okay. And I, I will tell about the genesis of Tooth Whistle, Plug and Boom, and, and Melody on the one side, about uh, the genesis of Ben and Me, and, and the whole, the whole like package feature that would have been about folklore and American history, and yeah. then uh, about the making of Beaver Valley and the Olympic Elk. Right. And, and I, I, I have a number of questions I want to ask, but on this thread, I, I do want to ask you about uh, Perry, uh, which is a true life fantasy. So that was that was something that was slightly different. Uh, can you can you speak to that? And are you going to do anything uh, uh, with Perry? Well, I haven't started studying Perry, obviously, in a lot of detail. Um, but, but yes, so that was a very special uh, uh, true life because, as you said, it wasn't a true life adventure. It was a true life fantasy. It, it was a, a whole uh, fictional aspect to, to it. So it was based, obviously, on a story uh, by the, the same writer who wrote Bambi, uh, mm-hmm. Felix Sultan. Uh, and so um, so there is a whole story to be told there, and, and I'm sure that will be told at some point within the, the, the monograph series, the whole uh, story about the making of the theory. Uh, and, and, and frankly, I mean, there are Fabulous story is also about uh, other um, movies about the animals uh, uh, that 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 are produced after the True Life Adventures, and that are equally interesting. And there's dozens of them, dozens of them, and they, and some of them have funny names to you know, some funny titles. Uh, you know, uh, there, but they did a lot of those nature films for uh, uh, for the television show. That's right, and, and and to be honest, right now I'm I'm staring at a box of material that I just received last week from the son of one of the cinematographers that worked on quite a few of the Trollite Adventures and quite a few of those uh, uh, live action uh, movies about animals. Uh, a person called Lloyd Beebe, and uh, and I'm starting to scan uh, all of his collection uh, one box at a time, and it's it's proving to be great fun. And there will be material for either myself or other historians to to write a lot more about those projects. Did did you get did you find much material on Stormy Palmer? Um, not a lot, uh, unfortunately. Uh, um, there are a couple of reasons why uh, I did find a bit of material um, related to Stormy Palmer. There were a few memos where he's explaining what he's trying to do from a, from an editing standpoint, and, and so on and so forth. But, but unfortunately, Stormy didn't didn't give many interviews, and for some reason, not a lot of his papers were preserved by the by the Disney archives, and I wasn't able to uh, uh, to find anything with with the family. So that's a bit sad. That, that's too bad. I I actually had the pleasure of meeting him once, uh, and uh, you know uh, he uh, just for our listeners, uh, he was uh, one of the main editors uh, in the fifties. Uh, in fact, uh, Roy E. Disney, who had been working at NBC on uh, Dragnet, on the Dragnet TV series, when when they went on hiatus, uh, Roy came over to the Disney Studios and became an apprentice to Stormy Palmer in uh, in editorial on True Life Adventures. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, I, I was just curious if you came across that. Were there any other people that were, were you know, uh, obviously uh, uh, Algar, James Algar and. 
Well, you have you have at least four people that were absolutely critical to that whole project. Right. Uh, you mentioned James Algar, who was one. Mm-hmm. Um, Winston Hebler was another one. Yeah. Uh, and then the two that are there from the very start, in fact, from before the genesis of the True Life Adventures, from the moment where um, the studio starts producing um, the Amazon Awakens, which I mentioned earlier, are Ben Sharpstein and mm-hmm. Erwin Verity. Right. Uh, and, and those two uh, are there all the way through until those, uh, those, those movies about the animals that I was mentioning earlier that, that followed through life adventures. And so you see them in all of the correspondence, in all of the projects, and they're really the two key drivers of that, uh, of that whole series. And, and you mentioned Ben Sharpstein. I, I did visit Ben Sharpstein's museum, the Ben Sharpstein Museum uh, uh, up in, uh, um, uh, uh, gosh, the town is now uh, slipping my mind, uh, but it's uh, up in uh, um, uh, Calistoga. Yeah, that just got, came to me. It's in Calistoga, which is part of Napa Valley. And uh, if uh, if you're ever up in Napa Valley, people should swing by and visit the Ben Sharpstein Museum because there's an entire room full of Ben Sharpstein's memorabilia from his years at the Disney Studios. I just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> so uh, I, I, let me just ask you uh, uh, a few more questions. I, I'm curious about what you found out about, uh, you know, the the logo for the True Life Adventures uh, is, is sort of this compass rose that has a globe spinning in uh, uh, in the center of it. And uh, and I know you have a picture of it in uh, on page 144 as a dimensional uh the dimensional uh, shot of the true life adventure globe. Uh, Can you tell us any more about that? I'm just, I was always fascinated by that logo because I really liked it a lot and it's very iconic Disney, you know? So unfortunately I didn't find a lot of details about it, but we we know that Hugh Byworks actually worked on, on on that sequence and on, uh, uh, I believe the animation uh, of that basically on the, the uh, the whole setup. Uh, he was involved in that, and obviously Ubi Works is uh, one of Disney's uh, first colleagues, the co-creator of, of Mickey Mouse, uh, sure. and and the visual effects uh, uh, genius. Uh, yes. At that time. Um, and, and I take it that globe doesn't exist anymore. Nobody has it. You haven't been able to locate it physically. I was not able to locate it physically, no. Which is too bad. Um, uh, and uh, as far as uh, the the release of these movies into the theaters, because these were all released theatrically, uh, how well did they do? Did you ever come across any correspondence about how well these movies performed? I mean, obviously, I, I, I think they won, am I correct in saying, is it six or seven Academy Awards? Yeah, I can't remember the exact number right now, but yes, at least it's, it's like most right. of it's like most of the series was an Academy Award winning, se- you know, uh, movies. That that's correct, and they, they did really well in theaters, as far as I know. I, I know that at least the Seal Island did really really well, and and again, I have details about the exact. Uh, uh, numbers and uh, and success of the of the movie in, in theaters. Do you know what Seal Island was released with? I, I 
I do note that in in the monograph, but I do not remember. Right Off the top of your head, that that's understandable. There's there's so much detail uh, to to this whole project, and and, and again, I just want to I, I I want our listeners to hear that you can get a copy of the origins of Walt Disney's true life adventures by Didier Gares. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon, and we're Al John. We're going to put a link into uh, the show notes so people can click right through to that. Um, what else do you want people to know about this book? Well, again, I mean, it is based on um, very much original research, and none of that story had been told before. Uh, most of the illustrations had never been seen before. Lots of them come from museums uh, that had to scan them for the very first time. So no one, even at the museums, had ever seen those photographs. They were in negative form uh, until I requested scans. And so... Uh, uh, I think uh, if you're interested in reading that Disney history and, and frankly, what's really an adventure story and a really fun story, uh, you're going to have a ball. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's that's the one thing I love about these types of books is that there's material in the books that people have never seen before. I mean, we're, I think we were all kind of, you know, tired of picking up books occasionally where we see the same type of images over and over and over again in multiple books. And what's so great about this. And and again, I haven't read it from cover to cover, but I have flipped through it and, and pretty extensively flipped through it. Um, There are a lot of things I've never seen before. And that's, that's, what's really exciting about these types of projects is when you uncover that kind of material and then, present it to the readers well what i can share with you dave is i'm still amazed at the amount of new material that you can uncover on almost any subject related to disney history and i'll give you just one example i mean you would think that um, mickey mouse in the 1930s would be a subject that has been explored so much that everything would have been uncovered i mean after all it's the most famous uh, cocktail that Disney created, and it's his golden age, the 1930s. Well, I started researching uh, a project which I thought would be one volume of the monograph series, which in the end is going to be at least two volumes and maybe three, with fellow um, Disney historian B.B. Spatz. And when we started researching that subject matter of Mickey Mouse on stage and on radio in the 1930s, we, we started uncovering uh, a story that no one was really aware of, uh, which, which again, is going to span at least two volumes of the monograph series with more than 500 illustrations that no one had ever seen before, including Mickey uh, Mouse in big parades across the United States, not just the disease parade that everybody knows about, but parades in Ohio, parades in Canada, parades all across the United States, parades in Europe, and so on and so forth. And all of those photographs of those amazing floats that no one had seen before, the photos of those Mickey Mouse state shows that, frankly, we knew very, very little about, Uh, photos of marionette shows, official marionette shows with Mickey Mouse from the 1930s, and, of course, the whole story about the creation of the Mickey Mouse Theater of the Air in 1938, but which is a much more complex story and much more in-depth story than, than what we had been aware of and which starts in 1931. So 
it is amazing the richness of, of Disney history, but what's also really amazing is the amount of Disney history that still hasn't been told and still uh, remains to be resolved. And, and I can attest because I, I, I know that you have shown uh, some of the photographs uh, to us uh, at the monthly uh, uh, Hyperion Historical Alliance uh, uh, Zoom meetings that we have. Uh, you've shown some of those images to us, and uh, they're really amazing. They really are. And uh, it's something that I, I'm really looking forward to. And you're absolutely right. You know, I, I've told people there's thousands of stories still to be told. Uh, uh, within the Disney universe. Uh, there are so many different facets uh, uh, of not only the animation and the live action films, but the theme parks uh, and so many other aspects, uh, merchandising and publishing and records and music and all of that stuff. There, there, there's a really an endless uh, supply of, uh, of subject matter and stories still to be told. Absolutely, absolutely, and I could go on and on and on and on, but I'm not going to do that on. <laughs> well, I, I, I will say, and Al John, Al John and I know this for a fact, we're going to have you back on in the, in the future to talk about some of these other book projects that are going to be coming out in, in the years to come. So uh, uh, I, I guess at this point, the only other thing I would say is uh, what what is your compelling argument for our listeners to go out and buy this book? Well, first and foremost, because it's fun to read. Uh, it is fun. It's a fun adventure. It's a fun way to go and travel to Alaska with two amazing uh, artists who work for Disney uh, and, and be able to have an amazing adventure, uh, but while still in your armchair. Uh, and I think that that in itself is uh, is a good reason to do it, that. It, like, it's worth it's worth the price of admission, as they say. And and, and I will I will say to folks, uh, you know these these true life adventures. If you haven't seen them in a while, they are available on DVD. They they had been put out on DVD uh, a number of years ago, and I'm sure most of these are they available on Disney Plus now. Uh, do, to, Quite a few of them are, yes. Yeah, not, all of them, I think, not, not all of them, but some of them are, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh and they really are uh the beginnings uh of uh what nature films have become. Uh they really are the beginning of uh, uh of what uh Jacques Cousteau became and the Mutual of Omaha nature series and even Disney Nature, which is producing uh, features again. Uh, it was very nice to see that Disney created that Disney nature label because it really is a throwback to the beginnings of the studio. Um, and, you know, the beginnings of the live action studio anyway. Um, so, but the book is fantastic. There's, there's a lovely forward by uh, Don Hahn, friend of the Skull Rock podcast. Uh, he, he wrote a nice introduction. Uh, uh, and uh, with that, Didier, I will say thank you very much for being on the Skull Rock Podcast. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you very much, Al John. And we're gonna put we're gonna put links to the book in the show notes. Uh, and I would encourage everybody if you're if you're a Disney fan, 
this is the kind of book that you want to have uh, in your library because it's just absolutely killer to see all of this material that really has never been seen before. And there's literally stuff in this book, as, as Didier had pointed out, that even the museum curators didn't know what they had until they actually scanned the negatives. So to me, you know, you're going to, you're going to just eat this book up. It's amazing to see this uh, behind the scenes of the true life adventure films. Thanks again, Didier. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much. And we're clear. Okay, great. Thank you, Didier. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. I thank the fans out there. Uh, we had a little audio uh, snafu there with the DTA's connection, but we, we did the very best we could with his connection. But uh, what a great, great discussion with him and the true life adventure origin story. Yeah, and it's really a terrific book. I have to tell you, I, I, I have a copy of it. I've read most of it. Uh, it's just really well done. It gives you a peek behind the scenes of how those uh, uh, documentaries, those nature documentaries got made. Uh, I would uh, highly recommend you get a copy uh, of that book, and we'll put a link into the show notes uh, for everybody. Sounds great, Dave. Once again, I uh, love the fans out there. Please consider subscribing to the show if you just stumbled upon us in your new year. Subscribe, like the show on all our social media. As Dave said, you know, both of us are on LinkedIn, but you can follow the show social on Facebook, Twitter, uh, also Instagram. Give us a like and subscribe. Give us those five star reviews wherever you can on your favorite podcatcher. Of course, we're on iHeartRadio, we're on Sorcerer Radio. Gosh, every time we're Amazon, of course, we're, we're everywhere. Of course, Apple is probably Spotify. Probably Spotify. I mean, just keep we're running everywhere. it down. <laughs> we're on every. We're everywhere. You listen to podcasts. You can't escape the Skull Rock Podcast. Certainly not. You certainly can't. <laughs> and send us those emails. We'd love it too, Dave or Al John at SkullRockPodcast.com. And uh, I'm going to give a little bit of a shout to our podcast too, my uh, fellow podcast, uh, Dining at Disney, as well as uh, the Disney List. So please check those out, Dave. You've got the final word. Well, as always, Al John, uh, I just want to let people know if you want to read a little bit more about Disney uh, history, Disney animation, uh, you can check out uh, some of the articles I have posted on my website at davidbossert.com. Uh, also, if you're interested in any of my books and other books, you can go to the oldmillpress.com. And uh, with that, go out and have a fantastic week. It's a four-day work week, which is awesome. Uh, and we will see you next Monday right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves well i can do all of the legwork for them i have expertise i've been to the disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise Disney Park Trip, Adventures by Disney. They can call-
contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com. <laughs>